Up next, the Cannabis Reporter Radio Show with Snowden Bishop. After this message. The practice of medicine through the phone, email, or online video chat is called telemedicine. According to the Wellness Council of America, over 70% of all ER, urgent care, and doctor's visits can be handled safely over the phone. HealthTerra provides personalized telehealth services, giving you access to U.S. board-certified physicians 24-7, anytime, anywhere. Doctors visits at your convenience at HealthTerra.com. And now, broadcasting on StarWorldWideNetworks.com, it's time for the Cannabis Reporter Radio Show with Snowden Bishop. Listen in as Snowden interviews cannabis industry pioneers, marijuana experts, policymakers, medical practitioners, patients, and other amazing individuals with compelling stories to share. It all happens right now. Here's the cannabis reporter, Snowden Bishop. Hello, and welcome back to the Cannabis Reporter Radio Show. Thanks so much for tuning in. I'm your host, Snowden Bishop, and I'm really excited about today's show because we are fortunate to have two renowned medical doctors who are truly pioneers in the emerging field of cannabis medicine. Before I bring them in, it's important to mention how rare it is to find medical professionals who are not only willing to discuss medical marijuana, but are extremely knowledgeable about it. There are a number of barriers to acceptance of medical marijuana as a viable treatment option in the medical community. Perhaps the most important is the federal law, which bars doctors from actually prescribing it to patients for fear of having their license to practice medicine revoked by the DEA. Other barriers include the cultural stigma, of course, associated with marijuana, the lack of education about cannabis in medical school, and the absence of clinical studies validating the abundance of anecdotal evidence that cannabis is not only an effective medicine, it's necessary to human health. Cannabis unlocks the functionality of a vital internal system known as the endocannabinoid system, which was only discovered as recently as the 1980s. Since then, research has been limited by the same barriers that have deterred doctors from investigating medical marijuana, and very few medical schools include courses on the endocannabinoid system, and funding for research has also been challenging for all of the above reasons. This is something my guests today know a lot about, and I have been looking forward to this conversation for a very long time. First, I'd like to reintroduce Dr. Brian Donner, who's been a guest with me before. He's an attending emergency physician at Armstrong County Memorial Hospital outside of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. In addition to emergency medicine, he has undergone extensive fellowship-level training in both wound care and hyperbaric medicine. He's also licensed to practice medicine in New York and certified to attest for medical marijuana in New York, Florida, Pennsylvania, and soon Ohio. He's a very big advocate for medical marijuana, and as owner of Compassionate Certification Centers, he's especially interested in the future research and educating medical practitioners so that this field can open up to patients. 
So thank you so much, Dr. Donner, for being here. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Snowden. Happy to be here. Our other guest today, I am delighted to introduce Dr. Sue Sisley. She's a psychiatrist and former clinical assistant professor at the University of Arizona College of Medicine. She's very well known in cannabis circles for her research into potential medical uses of marijuana and in-depth study of cannabis as a treatment for PTSD. She's a foremost authority on that emergent science. And thank you, Dr. Sisley, for being here. I'm so glad that you were able to make time today. And I know that you might have to cut out early for uh, appointments that you have, but I really appreciate you being here. So thank you. Oh, I'm looking forward to being to, to the dialogue with both of you guys. Thanks for the invite. Oh, you're certainly welcome. You know, I mentioned in passing in our, our correspondence back and forth about a study that came out with the National Academy of Sciences that basically drilled down on, on some of the studies that are already available out there and talked about some of the conclusive or substantial evidence as well as limited evidence about how cannabis affects the human body and the effects that it has on our health and that sort of thing. And what I thought was really interesting is that some of what was said in there can be spun by um, either side, either advocates or opponents to medical marijuana. But I just wanted to kind of get your take on on this report that came out. And um, Dr. Sisley, let's start with you on this. Sure, yeah. No, the National Academy of Sciences released what I would consider a groundbreaking report. It's really one of the first federal agencies to to um, state conclusively that there is real evidence that supports marijuana used as a medicine. Um, Sure, the report did not find clinical evidence for all of the conditions that marijuana treatment is often associated with, but but, you know, it, it, the report recognized its efficacy for treating many different medical conditions, including chronic pain, chemotherapy-induced nausea and vomiting. They mentioned that there was very robust evidence for cannabis in use in multiple sclerosis and spasticity. Um, so I viewed the report as a victory and a vindication for many researchers and patients and, and health providers who have long understood the benefits of medical cannabis. But, you know, to have this kind of thorough scientific review and evidence that concludes that there are real benefits to medical cannabis, this should really boost the case for federal reform. So I couldn't have been happier. I I know that people were concerned that they, um, you know, they were, they were skeptical about marijuana's benefits in treating some medical conditions such as cancer. Um, absolutely. I mean, the, there isn't rigorous data now to defend that, but there is early preclinical data and receptor level research looking at the anti-cancer activity of cannabis. So that all looks very promising, but no, it doesn't rise to the level of rigorous controlled trials. But nonetheless, this was a comprehensive review. It's a strong rebuke to the many, you know, prohibitionists and, you know, the opponents of cannabis who try to claim it's not a medicine, including our own DEA, the Drug Enforcement Agency, has famously denounced 
the idea of cannabis as medicine. Remember the the former or the current DEA director said medical cannabis is a joke and things like that. So I think this is going to provide strong alternative evidence for him. It was really interesting. In a recent show that I did, we discussed at length the notice that came out actually in the registry from the DEA stating that they were actually separating CBD from uh, THC marijuana within the Schedule 1. And that sent up such red flags around the industry. Oh, you know, they're, they're saying that CBD is now a controlled substance, whereas, you know, they may think it is, and they may call it a Schedule 1 substance, but the higher court, um, Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals, actually uh, made a ruling that made it completely legal to import, sell, and use here in the States, no matter which state you live in. But what was really interesting about this report overall was just how much we have to do to get the research up to par to catch up with the anecdotal evidence. Yeah, no question that um, that was a big part of the report was addressing these relentless barriers to research. Uh, we're talking about, um, you know, trying to do efficacy research in the U.S. is is very difficult. And our study is a perfect example of that, which I'd be happy to touch on later. You know, we're trying to do a randomized controlled trial looking at both safety and efficacy within the same trial. And those are the trials that are systematically impeded by our government. And that's what the NAS report really outlined nicely. Um, The other thing that I liked about that report was they talked about the safety data in cannabis smoking we still have a lot of folks who believe that cannabis smoke has long-term health harms, you know, that they still associate cannabis smoke with lung cancer and emphysema. But the fact is, you know, 30 years of safety studies, much of it sponsored by NIDA, has never uncovered a link between cannabis smoking and lung cancer or any long-term lung complications. So, I'm not pro-smoking at all. You know, as a physician, I think Brian and I probably both agree that we'd prefer our patients not smoke anything and not inhale products of combustion if possible. But uh, the, the truth is that smoking is a legitimate delivery method for cannabis. There is no data that speaks against that yet in health-wise. And our own FDA approved our study, you know, this clinical trial we're currently conducting, is smoking is the sole delivery method in the study, and the FDA approved that. So uh, I think it was great to see that NAS report, um, you know, highlight that. Yeah, I mean, and aside from from some of the points that they mentioned, which is that the smoke can actually exacerbate or irritate people who have COPD, for example, which just seems obvious. I mean, <laughs> it, was, it, it, it was interesting that they actually mentioned that, And in some of the reports that came from the opposition-leaning side of the media, you know, they're using some of this to suggest that what they were saying in there was negative, but actually it was very positive, as you point out. That's what's interesting. Like you said, the way, um, you know, data can be manipulated to support either opinion, but the truth, the quote that I look at was, Smoking cannabis does not increase risk for cancers associated with tobacco use, such as lung or head and neck cancers. You know, there's no increased association 
So that that's the powerful statement that I think you know that that we need to focus on. Not the you know anybody can take uh, excerpts from the report and try to use it to you know take it out of context and use it to support their personal opinions. But I think it's it's pretty clear. Yeah, there's no question that you know smoking cannabis can cause some local irritation, but there's no long term complications from it. Yeah. Well, it's, I'm really delighted to see this kind of a study come out. And as far as barriers to the research, I know that it's difficult for people really having a desire to get this information out to actually raise the funds or get uh, academic institutions interested in that. Tell me some of the things that you've run up against in trying to get this study, for example, approved. Yeah, I mean, yeah, you're right. Public institutions are the toughest. Where anyone who's accepting federal dollars is going to be fearful of doing cannabis efficacy research. Um, they don't mind doing safety studies. You know, if you're if you've got a multi-million dollar grant from NIDA, the National Institute on Drug Abuse, to study harmful side effects of cannabis or addiction potential of cannabis, I think most of them would happily accept money for safety studies, but. If you dare say you want to study efficacy of marijuana, that's what will put you at odds with government institutions, universities, hospitals, and that's what we ran into. For the last seven years, we've been trying to get this study underway, even though we had FDA approval early on and we were fully funded, we couldn't um, we couldn't persuade my own home university, um, you know, the University of Arizona College of Medicine refused to create a, a home for this work. And, um, you know, we were at odds with, even though we, we had received IRB approval, you know, so the institutional review board at the university had approved the protocol and we were ready to move forward since 2012, but the university kept um, stonewalling it. And finally we were terminated, both me and the study were tossed out of the medical school. So that unfortunately had a real chilling effect on the desire of other scientists to do this work because I think they view what happened to me as sort of emblematic of the way the government um, still treats cannabis research as if, you know, scientists who do this work are still a little bit of uh, pariahs, you know, they're not, they're not the golden child for sure because they, you know, the, first of all, the, the ability to leverage government money to do cannabis efficacy research is almost non-existent. There is very little federal government money ever available to study efficacy of cannabis. Only recently did we see um, NIH come out with that grant, you know, an RFP offering a small amount of money for looking at cannabis for pain management. That was it. And it was very short-lived. But basically, you know, you're, you're looking at trying to secure private dollars and trying to um, you know, and waiting years and years to get your study done. So if you're living in a publish or perish system at a university, you know, the, it, it's very difficult to survive doing cannabis research because it could take, in this case, seven years. Now, only now are we finally screening patients um, and getting ready to enroll patients. But, you know, you, you can see how it, you know, scientists will look at our saga and say, how can anybody do this and be able to 
to continue to be employed at a university. So now we're happily independent. You know, we've proven that you don't need a university or a hospital to do this work. Fortunately, the United States has a private IRB system, unlike other countries. So we have the option of of applying to a private IRB committee and doing going through the same um, scrutiny. And it's very effective and much more efficient, actually, than the university or hospital IRB. So um, so we're moving forward, and I think we're showing, you know, hopefully we're lighting the way for other scientists to follow our lead and start putting their toe in because this work is fascinating. I think they'll find it very gratifying, and I'm trying to mentor as many young scientists as I can to get into this field. You know, it's it's. The future of medicine, I think, you know, just from a, a non-medical professional's point of view, it seems as though with everything that is being discovered right now, there, it, the science is going to have to catch up with the anecdotal evidence eventually. But um, Dr. Donner, I wanted to ask you, do you think that a lot of the reasons that make it tough to get academic institutions involved in research, do you think that those are the same reasons that they don't actually offer a syllabus in cannabis in medical school? I think partly. That's that's absolutely it. And I think also, like Dr. Sisley said there, too, there, there's been sort of a stigma that's carried to this as well. Um, and I think it's really, when you look at this broken down sort of the, ba- the basic science of the cannabinoid system versus the clinical uh, effects of how we're trying to, to modulate that, essentially. I think we might have a better handle on, uh, on if you look, sort of the, the physiological, the biochemical, really breaking it down sort of on the molecular level, but really how that uh, quantifies out into what type of effects do those have physiologically. I think we, we don't have quite a, as good of a grasp on that. On that, Yeah, like Dr. Sisley said, we've had We've had research out there. It's really encouraging. It's showing these, but we really need to fine-tune that and take that to the, the next level as well. I think it also goes back to, you know, one of the things that you have to remember is many of our, our academic institutions, whether they're medical schools, residency programs, fellowship, they oftentimes take federal funding. Um, and I think it makes it very difficult if, if you look at it from a federal standpoint and the way they're viewing it. And then you have these institutions that are taking federal funds, uh, like Dr. Sisley had hinted at, that, that there's a trickle-down effect to that. And, you know, most medical schools, they're run by the major universities in our, uh, in our country. So I think that's probably part of, the, part of the issue as well, that it really comes from the, from the federal level and then it's a trickle-down from there. Yeah, and it's, it's that chicken-and-egg scenario as well because – you know, they they won't authorize the research because it's Schedule 1, but then, you know, they can't uh, deschedule it because they don't have the research. That, that's absolutely <laughs> correct. Absolutely correct. And, I, you know, the other thing, too, Snow, and I wanted to comment just, just a, a few things that Dr. Sisley said I couldn't agree about more. I think, number one, to be able to really try to, to educate and open the mind to not only physicians but medical students and researchers, this is a time in our country that this will happen once. And, and us as, as clinicians and, and researchers, we're, we're able to take part of this and really have an impact on how things are laid out in, in the future. And to me, as a physician and as a researcher, I find that fascinating and, and very fulfilling as well, that this is something that we can really help pave the way for. And, and my, my kids that are small now, six and four years old, 
whenever they're older, they're going to view this differently than everybody else did. And I, I think that's, that, that's so, so important. Um, the other thing I wanted to comment was on the, the National Academies, how they put that out. I think at the very, the very end in their statement, one of the things that they focused on is, was the, the conclusions and the challenges and barriers in conducting cannabis and cannabinoid research. And they, they listed a lot of the things that, that we spoke about, and the top one there being that its classification of cannabis still is a Schedule One substance. The fact that we have, uh, we have an organization like that and they're making that statement in that report is very encouraging to me. And I look at it like Dr. Dr. Sisley does that. Really, this, this report has shown that, hey, look, there is, a, there, there is some evidence after being reviewed that this absolutely can be helpful. What that means is we now need to now take that to the, the next level, the, the, the multi-center randomized clinical controls that are, that are occurring across our country and at different institutions on a large scale. So I, I personally was, was really encouraged by that as a clinician and a, as a clinical researcher, um, and particularly what they, what they said about focusing on the, you know, the barriers of the cannabinoid research, and hopefully people will take a listen to that. Yeah, I would think so. What I like about what you said about how this only happens once, I think that the doctors who do become early adopters of medical marijuana as a viable treatment option are really going to be able to help shape whether or not this falls into the hands of those who would make synthetics out of a natural plant substance. What are your feelings about that? I think it's a double-edged sword, that's for sure. Uh, I think you can probably look to history and see it's hard whenever you take something that's uh, obviously that's, that's sort of created by nature, if you want to put it that way, uh, and, then start to, and then start to modulate it. Uh, I think you can run into into some problems. With that said, I think there's been, uh, you know, in, in the history we've had success doing that in in other type of instances. But I think it's a it's a fine line that you, that you have to walk. In my opinion, right now, I don't think we're at the point yet. To me, it's more important right now to understand the the more natural process and the natural product down to a molecular and a physiological level. Until you really understand that, uh, the way I view it is, are you able to appropriately uh, simulate that uh, synthetically? And I'm not sure about that answer. So, uh, you know, over time, the the one thing I know, and particularly when you see things change on a federal level and, and big pharma starts to get involved, I think that's something that, that that's very real and we'll have to have to address. Um, unfortunately, I don't think there's any way of completely completely eliminating that. And in the scientific process, it's obviously very important. Um, but it has its pitfalls without a question. Yeah, Dr. Sisley, um, how much research have you already done on the endocannabinoid system? Only my own personal research, reading, whatever I can find about, but we haven't done, you know, we haven't conducted any trials looking at, um, you know, sort of receptor level research of how the endocannabinoid system works. Fortunately, there's a ton of literature that's already been published. It's, you know, in peer reviewed medical journals documenting how the ECS um, is probably one of the most important homeostatic mechanisms in every human body. So, that's already available. That's why the earlier discussion about why is it that medical schools aren't embracing this information in their core curriculum, you know, when we already have almost four decades of, of good data about how the ECS works, 
And yet there's, there was a survey published, I think, last year about, you know, it was like a, a phone survey of all the medical schools asking them who, who teaches this, you know, do you have any information about the endocannabinoid system in your curriculum? And, you know, I think there was only a handful of schools that even knew what the endocannabinoid system was. <laughs> I find that um, astonishing. <laughs> <laughs> I, know. I know. So that's why, you know, what Dr. Donner was saying earlier, we, you know, we, we need them to be exposed to this during training because it's so tough to talk um, uh, a, a practicing physician into the idea of listening to this because, um, you know, even though it, the, the, the information is compelling, it's just, we are all so busy. Once we're in practice, the chance of getting anyone's attention and, and persuading them to, to do their own independent study of this is going to be tough. So, um, that's why if they're not exposed during their core medical school and residency, the chance of, um, getting this in front of them is hard. And that's why you're seeing so much resistance from docs who, um, you know, and pushback from, from especially organized medical associations, right? In every new medical cannabis state, you almost always have active opposition from the organized medicine associations. Like in our, in Arizona, we have Arizona Medical Association. In Florida, the Florida Medical Association actively um, campaigned against that ballot initiative that just passed with 72% voter support. So, you know, the, the problem is that the physician, the organized medicine community still views cannabis as a threat, um, you know, a threat to their relations with pharma and all kinds of concerns that they have. You know, I, I'm not, I'm not claiming that all of them are in bed with pharma, but I have real concerns about the fact that organized medicine does have a a close relationship with pharmaceutical companies and pharma clearly has, uh, you know, serious frustration with, with the medical cannabis movement taking hold so broadly. They are really, they're seeing it impact their bottom line on a daily basis. I mean, here at this clinic, I'm taking care of veterans every day who have actively walked away from their pharmaceutical prescriptions and are using cannabis alone as monotherapy. You know how threatening that is to the, uh, you know, the market share of pharma. They're seeing their you know, revenues dwindling because of this um, this initiative amongst the veteran community. Yeah. Well, pharmaceutical industry is one of the largest lobbies um, against the legislation that has been, there are so many bills that have been pending in Congress dealing with, you know, legalizing cannabis, legalizing medical marijuana, legalizing hemp to you know, for farmers to enjoy the profits of growing it here in the States. I mean, they've been all over this for so long. It really is no surprise. But also in institutions such as skilled nursing facilities and hospitals, um, I've actually spoken to a number of doctors who were barred from even having discussions with patients um, as part of their contract. Have you, have you noticed this much? I don't, you know, I, I haven't run into that, but I suspect that Dr. Donner might, because of his work in the ER, it's more of a a practice a team. I'm 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 curious to see what he thinks, but it, that's what's so wonderful though about having mainstream physicians like Dr. Donner, 
getting involved in this because I was a huge skeptic. You know, 10 years ago, I did not view cannabis as a medicine at all. And I found this, all these claims from patients to be absurd and, you know, not based on any real biological science. So it took me years to get to this point, but that's, you know, having mainstream MDs and DOs like Dr. Donner, they're, you know, starting to normalize this discussion where physician community is starting to realize this isn't just a fringe element anymore. There are legit docs who are, you know, relatively conservative, who all, who are examining the science that they're acknowledging that there are already thousands of controlled trials published in peer-reviewed medical journals confirming a, a variety of medical benefits of the plant. So, um, but yeah, I mean, I, I haven't, I, the only time I've run into, you know, overt pressure not to discuss this was at the VA. I used to work at the Phoenix VA hospital. And of course, all of us were counseled that we're not allowed to have any dialogue about cannabis as a medicine and only to, you know, at that point we didn't yet have a medical cannabis program. So this, you know, things changed and now the, there's a national directive at the VA to um, enable veterans who, who live in legal medical cannabis states to be able to participate in their program and not be harmed. You know, like we, we keep hearing um, cases of veterans who, have a card and yet are terminated for their from their opioid program at the VA. That still happens commonly, even though there is a national directive in place to prevent that. So the problem is the VA can issue a national directive and encourage VA docs to do the right thing, but ultimately the docs are allowed to practice how they want, and most of them practice on the you know err on the side of over caution and prefer to avoid this discussion completely. So. Yeah, well, I thought it was a, a step in the right direction anyway to get a directive from the VA about something like this because, you know, the, I think that, you know, with the military especially, and I've experienced this with my own father who is a veteran, and um, I've recently had to deal with, like, the Naval Hospital in San Diego, for example, um, you know, to get him off of the medication that they had him on and transition him into a cannabis protocol that actually saved his life. And, you know, much to the chagrin of the doctors who said, oh, that won't work. And um, it was really interesting. But Dr. Donner, this is something that I'm really excited to delve into with you because you are really out there actively educating medical practitioners about the benefits of cannabis. Tell me a little bit about how you started doing that. Sure, absolutely. And I just want to real quick, too, so if you don't mind me commenting on that, one of the things that, and I have heard some, some kickback on, on this exact thing we were talking about, and it's been at some of the, it's been with some of the, the higher level, more academic institutions that, that I've seen it. But my, my response when I get, get that to people is that it's not as, as physicians and clinical providers Right now, we, it's not, you don't have the option or you shouldn't just to, be, just to say, no, I don't believe in this, I don't want to do it. It's fine if you're not going to certify patients or write prescriptions, but you have an obligation to your patients to be able to understand this and to be able to answer their questions and to be able to help to try to guide them. So whether you, whether you really deep down believe in it or not, it's not, for example, I can't say as an emergency physician, well, listen, I don't believe in TPA for a stroke, even though the evidence is marginal. 
that's not, it, I, I can't do that. So I'm required to be able to understand that and present the options to our patients. And I think that's something that I always, when, when I, I speak to physicians and they say that, well, I'm not interested in this, I don't. And I say, well, it's an obligation. And that's, uh, that's the way I look at it. And I feel that we have an obligation to our patients to at least on some level to be able to work with them through this whole process. So that, that's just my, my, my two cents from that end. But yeah, with, with regard to us starting, we started an organization, Compassion Certification Centers, that was a physician-owned and initiated company. And really what our focus was to, to provide physicians and other healthcare providers with the tools and resources they need to effectively and safely integrate medical cannabis in, in, into their practice. And, and that involves not only the the technical skills or the clinical skills that you're going to have, but also for, from a social aspect, from a legal aspect, some of the pitfalls that you're going to be uh, that you're going to be going through. And I found that, in my experience, whenever you're able to explain to physicians how the that the body has an endogenous endocannabinoid system, and when you explain how it works, and you understand receptors, and there's ligands binding, all of a sudden that their, their ears and eyes open up a little because this is something that they are able to to understand and grasp on because it's been it's been present in their in their education before that's the that's the biggest success uh, I have had more than anything else even more than uh, showing them clinical data showing them uh, clinical results from patients when you can explain the science behind it to to physicians I think that's when you can really get them to start start believing in it or at least say, okay, maybe there's something to this more than anything else because it's a process that they already understand. Yeah, and and more than most physicians, you have a very unique perspective on this, being an attending emergency room physician, because you've seen firsthand a lot of the problems with opioid overdose and, you know, problems with pharmaceuticals that have been used uh, for conditions that could easily be treated with cannabis with no side effects. Uh, absolutely. I, I can't. It, it's, it's so disheartening. I can't go through one shift at the emergency department um, and not treat an opiate overdose, uh, literally. And, and I'm talking an eight-hour shift. I see 20 to 25 people. There is at least one every time. Uh, and it's young people, and, and we see people dying. Uh, regularly, and I and I can tell you this uh, after, since I've been doing this for a while, it's been it's been getting uh, worse, and it's reached a critical mass in our country. Without it, it really is an epidemic. People, um, I know people use that word uh, a lot, but it's, it's absolutely true. I think not only from the opiate standpoint, but Dr. Sisley would probably agree with this as well. Our, our psychiatric system in our in our country, the way it's set up, is uh, I would I would use the term inadequate. Um, and there's there's extensive polypharmacy, and you see extensive side effects from these uh, type of medications that that are are very difficult and can be long lasting uh, and debilitating. So yes, I see it I see it every day all, all the time, and I think that that's one of the timing for medical cannabis, particularly when you look at it in relation to the uh, the, the opiate problem in our country. Um, is, is a very good thing because it's giving us a potential, a, a potential alternative treatment option, a potential uh, alternative to this problem that, that hopefully can lead to, uh, to, to better results uh, down the end. So it's, it's a real thing, and you're right. I, I see it all the time, and to be frank with you, it's, it's about the most disheartening thing in, in my job that I, that I do because so far yet there hasn't been a good answer. Yeah. 
Wow. Well, and, and as part of the Hippocratic Oath, do no harm, withholding something that could be potentially beneficial to a patient seems contrary to what it is to be a doctor. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, Dr. Sisley, I know that you had a very busy schedule today, and I know that there were some prior commitments that you had, and I just wanted to see if there's anything, if, if you are able to stay on, that's great. But if not, is there anything else that you would like to add before you need to run? Um, I think, you know, the main thing I wanted your audience to know is just that, you know, we're committed to uh, putting all of the data into the public domain. You know, the good and the bad of cannabis will all be published for everyone to scrutinize. Uh, because I think we're different than pharma. You know, I, my study sponsor is a nonprofit, MAPS. And MAPS is unlike pharma that will, you know, selectively. Remember, I did pharma clinical trials for years, and I saw the, the pressure to make data look look a certain way. To make, you know, they always made sure that studies that didn't make their drug look favorable never saw the light of day. And we don't function that way. Everything will be published, and I'm really proud to be associated with that um, mentality now because I would never, you know, we're really, I want the public to know that I'm, I'm objective. I've never used cannabis personally. I'm not part of the industry, and you know, I don't own interest in cannabis grows or dispensaries. I'm just focused on the science, and I really want to collect objective data that is truly unassailable and help the public understand more about how the plant works and uh, the discussion earlier about synthetics and things like that. I've, we're just focused squarely on whole plant research. I know that pharma will be certainly, you know, conducting efforts to create synthetics and um, that's a, a smart move for them because obviously they can't patent the whole plant. So their only hope is to isolate cannabinoids and, you know, create synthetics or take a certain cannabinoid and put it into a pill form and patent it and make tons of money. And I'm not um, disputing the need for that. I think there are patients who will want that option, and but there are other patients who will want access to whole plant. And I think I just wish that Big Pharma could see that there's room for both. We see it that way. I'm not trying to suppress, you know, the efforts of Big Pharma. I want them to to create their products and create alternatives. You know, the bottom line is sick and debilitated patients need access to options. That's the important message here that, you know, when you're sick, you need all different formulations, all different uh, options that you can try and see what works best. And so in some patients, whole plant will be the best option and it will undoubtedly be the most affordable. And that's why I'm fighting so hard to to put whole plant cannabis through the entire FDA drug development process. That's our um, sole focus right now is trying to move this through the, the process. And, and this study that we're conducting here, that's why I'm I'm having to sign off a bit early is just because I have um, patients who are waiting here who who are part of a phase two FDA trial. So this is an early phase drug development trial. But, you know, once we get this data from phase two, the FDA will probably invite us to move into phase three. And then after phase three, it's possible that this, you know, that whole plant cannabis could be on the market with an indication for PTSD if the data is compelling enough. And 
Um, and so that's what I wanted your audience to know that I don't think I, I know people are skeptical about the possibility of putting whole plant cannabis through the FDA process, but I'm not. I now that we've worked with the FDA and we understand their thinking. I mean, these are physician investigators. They're not law enforcement. So they have not been a barrier. I think people believe the FDA is blocking this research. Not at all. They've worked collaboratively with us from the beginning, and they really want to see the plant put through their entire drug development process. So I think we're really not that many years away from achieving that. And I just want to give your audience some hope that this could happen someday. And I think that's the only way we're going to be able to force insurance companies to pay for this. Um, mm-hmm. We've had a few, you know, glimmers of hope. There were a few insurance companies are already taking the steps to um, to, to allow for reimbursement of cannabis. There's been a few select cases that was that were published in the media talking about this. But these are this is this is still a very rare event. And what we'd like to do is be able to, you know, if we could get that it, through the FDA process, we would force all the insurance companies to at least have it on formulary as an option. Yeah. And I, I think that once studies like yours move through the FDA and become Uh, part of the nomenclature of what is allowed to be prescribed by doctors, that's going to shift the paradigm across the board, and I think it's just going to explode the opportunities for research as well. I think you're right. So anyway, I really appreciate the time you've given me today to to, you know, to, to discuss this and with Dr. Donner, he's one of my personal heroes for taking this on, and I'm, I'm looking forward to coming back on a future show and and updating you on where things are at with our research and that. Oh, I'm I'm very excited to learn more about um, what you're working on now as soon as you're able to talk about it because I think it's going to really help transform opinions and um, help remove the stigma and help so many veterans who are coping with, you know, the unthinkable consequences of, of where they've been in their service. So thank you for that. I mean, it's, it's truly incredible and you're definitely on the right side of history here. And no doubt, um, a lot of good is coming from this. So I really appreciate you being here. Thanks so much. You bet. Thanks to both of you guys. Take good care. Okay. And you too. Bye guys. Bye. And Dr. Donner, um, Let's pick up where we left off, because I, I also want to hear a little bit more about an event that is being hosted by you. And we only have about five minutes or so to kind of wrap this up. Uh, but tell me a little bit about the Compassionate Certifications Center's uh, conference that's coming up in April and what you hope doctors will be able to glean from that conference. I'd be happy to, and it actually links in perfectly to what we were discussing before about physician and and provider education and understanding. So uh, obviously in Pennsylvania, that's where uh, I I make my home and we know the recent legislature. So what what our organization really wanted to do was sponsor an event that Really was uh, had a focus on medical cannabis more than anything else. We had been to, we've been to numerous events across the country where the focus seemed to, to slip a little bit, and it really wasn't on the on the medicine per se. So that was our focus, and really what we wanted to do was be able to provide information and education not only to physicians and providers but also to uh, patients as well. 
And one of the things that we have integrated into uh, our event in April is going to be a, a basically a medical cannabis educational course for not only for, for physicians and clinical providers, but patients are welcome to attend as well. And one of the neat things that we've been able to do is provide uh, a 22 and a half AMA Category 1 continuing medical education credit uh, for this course. This is, this is a big deal. Uh, they're supported. These are the highest level educational credits that you can obtain. Um, they're approved by, uh, through the AMA. And really, this provides physicians not only a way to, to, to come and get educated, but also to obtain mandatory credits that they're required to do over a two- or three-year period. Uh, and what we've uh, we've had a tremendous uh, response so far. We're hoping to get uh, anywhere up to uh, a thousand providers who uh, will be attending our event, which would be very dramatic uh, and very it'd be uh, very supportive if we could find that. So it will be happening in uh, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, uh, April 21st and 22nd. It's the World Medical Marijuana Business uh, uh, Convention and Expo, uh, and it'll be a two-day event with uh, focus purely on uh, the medical aspects more than anything else. And obviously, the uh, the CME course will be provided as as part of the convention. Yeah, well, and and also you have uh, your regular course uh, courses that you offer too through the certification centers, isn't that right? Absolutely, and we're we're in the process of really the way I I had approached this Snowden was that as a as a clinician, a practicing clinician, what type of tools would I need personally if I wanted to do this? And uh, we've really tried to integrate everything into everything from that standpoint into our company. So the obviously the medical education is a is a big big focus on that as well. But it's continuing education. It's developing software, uh, therapeutic and diagnostic tools having easy access to the uh, research, understanding your state's laws and the conditions um, that are approved, um, really getting into things like dosing uh, so that, that physicians now take more of a responsibility that it's not only the patient is coming to see me and I'm going to certify them, but I'm going to actively be involved in their treatment plan. I'm going to design and implement and be able to change that as time goes on. That's really how I hope that, that, that this uh, progresses because it's a very... It's a unique way uh, of medicine. There's really not many, many other things where a patient may come and see you. And as a, as a physician, I say, okay, I'm going to, to certify you. You meet the state's criteria, but then yet I send you out to a dispensary that I don't know what the actual medication you're getting, the dosage that you're getting, the frequency, the route of administration. So I, I, I'm really hoping to, 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 to help providers take a bigger hand in their patient's care. It isn't just as simple as you come and see me, you have an appropriate condition, you're certified for medical cannabis. I, I want physicians to be involved in their care with that, just like they are for any other uh, disease entity or process. What do you think is the future for certifying doctors to handle cannabis? Like a certification program for doctors. Is is this a certification or is it just education um, that that meets some of their continuing education requirements? It's a great question. And I think you look at it sort of for twofold. Number one, to me, the way to really sort of educate the doctors at this point was to, to provide those continuing medical education credits more than anything else. The certification process gets, gets somewhat tricky. I, I actually went through this similarly in, in wound care, which is another very young field in its infancy. And, and what you started to see was initially there was there was just multiple, multiple organizations or companies that were coming out and they were offering a, quote, certification. 
um, for uh, for uh, clinical providers. Now, in all reality, what what weight does that certification take? What it's more, I've seen it more be based on a financial situation than a true certification. I think over time, what you will see is that there will be um, a handful of organizations that really rise to the top that are able to provide that that quote certification to say, listen, a provider has not only taken our course, but they've been they've been interviewed. They've really met all the all the criteria that are required to effectively use this as, as a treatment option into their into their practice, rather than just some company who you take a test and then they give you a certification paper, if that makes sense. So I think you will see over time that will that will narrow and narrow and narrow to the organizations that really take a lead and have a big say in this. Yeah. Well, it's it's amazing that the AMA actually offered um, CME credits for this because that actually adds a whole new layer of legitimacy to the to the study and to um, the interest uh, to attract the interest of the doctors who need that feeling of something being legitimate before they'll really embark on a on learning about it. So kudos for that. I mean, it's it's pretty amazing and impressive and. I'm really looking forward to this conference, and um, I'm actually very much looking forward to uh, having some great conversations with some of your presenters in advance so that people can kind of get an idea of what it is that um, they can expect from this conference. And I'm hoping that we're also speaking to a lot of um, medical professionals out there as our show is distributed into a number of different states. And, you know, if, if people are in states where medical marijuana is not yet quite legalized, it's important for the medical community to begin pushing their state uh, legislatures to think about passing legislation to give access to patients. So it's very exciting and wide open and I'm really excited about the future. Yeah. Yeah, me too. You know, and it's great. One of the things that the most things I've been encouraged about is we have we've had a number of of physicians and clinical providers sign up from states where where medical cannabis at this point hasn't been initiated yet. So to me, that was it's not only providers that that, okay from Pennsylvania, New York, uh, Arizona, wherever it may be, but also uh, providers from different states where maybe they're not quite there yet, but they're, they're starting to educate themselves and they're taking an interest on their own, which I find tremendously encouraging. Yeah, it, it's all very exciting. Wow. Well, I'm so grateful that you were here and it was great to speak with Dr. Sisley as well. Um, I'm really looking forward to speaking again. And I think you and I have a bit of an announcement to make, don't we? Absolutely. I'll let you do the honors. <laughs> Um, well, I am thrilled to announce that Dr. Brian Donner will be joining us on the Cannabis Reporter Radio Show every single week to give us our Medical Marijuana Minute, which uh, may or may not be longer than a minute, <laughs> depending on what there is to report. But there is really no one who is more qualified to give us updates every week about our um, the medical advances about the news that impacts patients about uh, things that are going on in states and new medical protocols that patients can start to look forward to. So 
I'm really grateful for that, and I couldn't be more thrilled that you'll be doing this with us. So welcome in that regard. Well, thank you, Stan. I, you and the Cannabis Report, I, I am looking forward to it as much as could be, and I think we'll be able to really talk about some, some interesting things that are going to be uh, hot topics and um, that we're going to see sort of spreading out into more the, the widespread media. So I am greatly looking forward to it, and I think not only will be informative, but we'll have some fun doing it as well. I think so, too, and I think our listeners will really enjoy it as well. So um, no doubt we'll be talking very soon about that. And anyway, I would like to say once again, personal thank you to Dr. Brian Donner and Dr. Sue Sisley for sharing their incredible knowledge and insights with us today. If you'd like to learn more about them and the work that they do, please visit us online at thecannabisreporter.com and click broadcast to find today's episode. I will have information along with their bios and uh, websites where you can check out all of the amazing things that they are doing. I also wanted to say a million thank yous to our producer, Wendy West, here at Star Worldwide Networks for making us shine on a regular basis. And thank you to all of you listening. Tune in next week, same time, same place, for another episode of the Cannabis Reporter Radio Show. I'm your host, Snowden Bishop. And until we meet again, stay safe, stay informed. Share what you've learned today and make it a great day. Every grain is calling, every grain is over.